Welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman, and I hope everyone's getting ready to get out the vote. It's such an important election. And speaking of engaging in the process, what a guest we have today. Jonathan Miller, one of my favorite hemp heroes, member in charge of Frost Brown Todd, a large law firm in Lexington, Kentucky, with offices all over the country, but also general counsel to the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, where I serve as the vice president of federal law lobbying and chair of the Federal Lobbying Committee. We're doing some tremendous work. Uh, and Jonathan Miller, who really was the uh, brain child of the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, is doing just incredible leadership in uh, a number of areas that are affecting the hemp industry. Large effects on the hemp extract industry and then beyond that in the hemp oil seed and fiber industries. Jonathan is a fascinating human being. Uh, I The more time I spend with him, the more I learn and his depth uh, just continues to amaze me. He, he is a delight of a human being, of a humanitarian, and a powerhouse of an advocate uh, and an attorney. So he graduated from Harvard College and Harvard Law School, so we're very blessed to have uh, his tremendous brains. He actually began his career in politics in college by serving as the National Director of Students for Gore in 1988. Uh, uh, when then-Senator Al Gore was running for president, and he later worked for Al Gore when he was vice president in the Clinton administration. And I even recently saw a wonderful um, uh, video, uh, sort of a throwback video of Jonathan introducing Al Gore at the Democratic National Convention. He also served as a politician in Kentucky. He was the secretary for the Kentucky Finance and Administration Cabinet from 2007 to 2011. And prior to that he had been the Kentucky State Treasurer uh, from 1999 to 2007, uh, and he also ran for governor of Kentucky. You know, other things that he's done, again, his depth being just so tremendous, he's authored the book, The Compassionate Community, which examines religious values and how they relate to politics. Uh, President Al Gore wrote that forward, and he's authored other books, and his wife, uh, Lisa, is just a total delight. An incredible woman, uh, a spiritual leader, a wellness leader who is also an author. So Hemp is very, very blessed um, to have Jonathan Miller be brought into our ranks. He sort of entered around 2014, and while it's taken so many heroes and heroines to get uh, Hemp to its seat at the table, which we finally got in 2014 through the 2014 Farm Bill, and now as an agricultural commodity in the 2018 Farm Bill. Now that we've got that seat on the table, we need some real uh, firepower. Um, we need some real credentials, uh, very strong credentials, and we certainly have that in Jonathan Miller and the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. So without further ado, um, I'd like to deliver to you uh, that great and informative, please stay on your toes, uh, interview with Jonathan. And once again, encourage you to make sure you get out the vote. If you can vote in person safely, some say that'll be the safest way to do it. Drop your ballot in the ballot box. Uh, and others say, get your vote in your ballot in the mail and do it very, very early, given all of the challenges uh, engineered or otherwise uh, that we're hearing about with the post office. So once again, uh, I I give you Jonathan Miller, and I hope you have a safe and healthy week. Engage! 
Well, welcome back to Hemp Barons, Jonathan Miller. It's always wonderful to have you as a guest. Great to be with you as always, Joy. Boy, do we have some things to discuss. The roundtable, the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, is busier than ever in leading the way to a path forward to common sense law and policy in hemp. And let's just get right into it here. On September 4th, Congressman Kurt Schrader and Morgan Griffith filed H.R. 8179, the Hemp and Hemp-Derived CBD Consumer Protection and Market Stabilization Act of 2020, which the U.S. Hemp Roundtable took a leading role in drafting with a large co- coalition. Could you tell us a little bit about H.R. 8179, Jonathan? Sure. You know, one of the real um, challenges for the hemp industry and hemp farmers right now is uh, the dramatic uh, decline in the price of hemp biomass uh, and um, bankruptcies that have occurred, contracts that have been broken. Uh, so much of this is uh, related to the fact that uh, the FDA has had guidance out there for, for more than five years that uh, argues that the CBD is not uh, legally uh, legal to be sold as a uh, dietary supplement or as a food and beverage additive. Uh, meanwhile, uh, as, as your listeners know, CBD is being sold in every state. Uh, uh, you can get it nearly everywhere. Uh, and there are thousands of products in the marketplace that are unregulated. Now, many of the products are great. Uh, our members of our roundtable take special care to make sure that they are uh, properly manufactured, the manufacturing practices and uh, truth and labeling. But, you know, there is a minority of products out there that, that are not uh, are, are not following the rules. And so what H.R. 8179 would do is it would create a legal regulatory pathway for the sale of uh, hemp derived CBD as a dietary supplement. Uh, that will do two important things. Number one, it will remove this cloud over the industry. Uh, and uh, we think uh, folks like Target and Walmart and uh, other places that have been hesitant to sell the products uh, will be willing to sell. Uh, we'll see a lot of uh, investment come into the industry. Uh, we'll see prices go up and, and farmers uh, be able to sell the products and their crops for, for reasonable prices. At the same time, it will require the CBD manufacturers to follow all of the relevant FDA rules for dietary supplements. So they're going to have to have good manufacturing practices. They're going to have to have truth in labeling. They're going to have to report adverse effects. They're going to have to do safety studies. And with all of this, uh, we're going to have safer products on the marketplace and we're going to be helping hemp farmers. So we really think that 8179, it's not a cure-all, but it will take a, a it will play a major, major role in helping uh, helping restore and stabilize the hemp market. And I understand that many folks, especially sort of in in the grassroots world, knowing that the hemp industry was in so many ways, of course, built on the backs of cottage industry and small businesses. And the idea comes to mind, why does hemp extract or CBD have to go through all of these steps uh, to be able to be introduced into commerce? And it's it's such a frustrating conversation to have because we're just fighting to be held to the same same standards that other dietary supplements and new dietary ingredients are held to uh, if they're not um, exempt from those requirements based on the time uh, obligations within the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Then in our developed country here, there are safety and quality standards in order to be able to, introduce in, to be introduced in, into commerce, uh, whether it's even for animal ingestion and certainly 
for human ingestion. So really what we're asking in this bill is to please allow us to be held to the same standards. Please allow us to sell this dietary ingredient as a dietary supplement uh, and release us from the shackles of this uncertainty and lack of clarity. And as you well know, Commissioner Stephen Hahn said back in February, um, it's a fool's game to even try to put this genie back in the bottle. That's a paraphrase of his quote, but certainly fool's game um, came right out of his mouth. So this is a fantastic development. Um, and as we know, also oftentimes uh, standalone bills uh, don't have a whole lot of, of traction. Um, so I know that we're hoping to, to gain tremendous traction here and that we'll be going on a social media and co-sponsoring campaign uh, very quickly to get folks to urge their representatives to sign on to this bill so that uh, we can turn it into something meaningful together as, as a coalition. Another thing uh, that is going on with the FDA, of course, is that they put draft guidance before the White House Office of Management and Budget, um, which is being debated right now. And there's so much uh, uncertainty because none of that has been released to the public. And I know that the U.S. Hemp Roundtable and you personally um, have been involved in these discussions. Is there anything that we can share with our listeners as to what's going on at the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget? Sure. You know, I, I had a formal meeting with um, the uh, Office of Management and Budget, which included about uh, 12, 13 different agencies, uh, including FDA, including HHS. Um, but I think my more important discussions are informal uh, uh, with uh, White House officials, uh, with the congressional staff who are in touch with the White House. And uh, from what I understand, there's a real battle going on behind the scenes. Um, there are uh, unfortunately, some folks that want to uh, have the status quo and just kick the can forward and, and to make this guidance uh, much about much ado about nothing. Uh, but there are people working on our behalf behind the scenes trying to uh, fight for uh, some uh, some guidance and enforcement policy uh, that will provide some relief uh, for for the industry. Uh, one idea would be uh, having formal enforcement discretion saying that if you play by the FDA rules and you follow all these good manufacturing practices, you can sell your products without fear that the FDA is going to uh, uh, intervene or, or do an enforcement action. And so while that's not as, as strong as a bill that uh, clarifies it, a law that clarifies it, it certainly would be a, a major step forward and hopefully would uh, really help uh, stabilize the industry. So we're going to continue with our back, back uh, behind the scenes lobby and, and hopeful that the forces of could uh, um, rise up. But uh, uh, the fact is uh, the permit solution, which will fix everything, is 8179. And uh, that's why we want to encourage you, if you're listening, you care about this issue, go to our website, hempsupporter.com. Uh, we set up an email so that you can email directly your member of Congress. You can ask him or her uh, to uh, be a co-sponsor of 8179. If we have enough co-sponsors, uh, then we'll have the kind of momentum that will allow this bill uh, to be added on to a must-pass piece of legislation before the end of the year. And so to do that, we need to we need to get all you out there involved. Please email your congressman, and, and we've made it really easy at hempsupporter.com. 
So fantastic. And really understanding that this bill will not only allow more products on the shelves in these, as you say, the large retailers who are uh, standoffish because of this FDA position statement or FDA guidance, but it will also allow for safer, high quality, compliant products on the shelf. It's really such a crapshoot, for lack of a more descriptive term, for an uninformed consumer who knows that they want to try these products, that these products may improve their overall general wellness, the quality of their life. But they here they are met with several different brands on a shelf having no idea what is really the quality or safety um, of what's inside that bottle. Unless, of course, it has a U.S. Hemp Authority seal. Uh, thank goodness for the U.S. Hemp Authority being a barometer to be able to tell with a consumer-facing seal this this product has met uh, safety standards. This met this product is compliant um, with standards that would allow it to be on on a shelf. And of course, the uh, base compliance for U.S. Hemp Authority certification is to uh, be compliant with good current good manufacturing practices uh, with the Code of Federal Regulations. So that's really the only thing, and thank goodness for it, that consumers have right now. And H.R. 8179 is going to uh, really help that, and I think also really help bring forth that U.S. Hemp Authority, the value of that seal as we move forward educating consumers and regulators and lawmakers on what it means uh, and how helpful it is. Additionally affecting the hemp extract industry, of course, is the new DEA interim final rule that was published a bit uh, blindsided. Let's talk about how that uh, DEA interim final rule affects most significantly uh, the hemp extract industry. And, And actually, before you answer that, Jonathan, I just can't help but say, as I say the word significant, uh, that as usual, um, the Drug Enforcement Administration has put forth sort of an arbitrary rule uh, stating that it's not a significant regulatory action. Well, we certainly beg to differ. This is a significant regulatory action that has taken place. And of course, we believe against the spirit and intent of the Farm Bill. So please, let's tell the listeners a little bit about the DEAIFR, the Interim Final Rule. Well, I think your listeners are, are well aware of our history with the DEA. It goes back three decades, at least, maybe maybe even more. Uh, but the DEA has always been the, the, the main antagonist uh, of the hemp industry. And uh, uh, I, I'm sure, uh, Joy, you could speak for, for hours on, on the history here. But that history was supposed to end on December 20th, uh, uh, 2018, when, when uh, Donald Trump signed the 2018 Farm Bill. That uh, declared that the the uh, era of prohibition on hemp was over. The uh, regulation of hemp was uh, designated to go to the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, and taken away from the Department of Justice and the Drug Enforcement Administration. But we've seen, uh, unfortunately, in recent months, the DEA uh, lift its nose under the hemp tent. Uh, several months ago, uh, we learned that uh, the interim final rule for the USDA, which uh, has been quite controversial, was uh, unduly influenced by the DEA, that many of the restrictions that we're fighting right now were imposed on the USDA by the DEA. But now, as you're talking about this new interim final rule, uh, would, uh, if taken to its full extent, would cause tremendous disruption and uh, would recriminalize uh, many basic uh, hemp extract activities. And and, uh, there's several parts of it, but I think the main thing here 
is um, the, the designation that in process hemp extract. Uh, so it's it's not the the uh, hemp that, that's uh, that's farmed. It's not the final products, but it's the hemp extract that is in in the process of, of getting from one place to another. Uh, that uh, they want to argue that if it's test above 0.3% THC, that it is a controlled substance. Now everybody knows, and Congress knew when it passed the Farm Bill uh, that uh, due to nature, due to processes, that uh, that uh, that measurement is going to be higher than 0.3% THC at, at parts of this this chain. Uh, it needs to be remediated. Uh, it needs to be uh, taken down before. It is sold as a product to consumers, but th that's the nature of the product. And so the DEA coming in and saying that at any time they could conceivably come in and arrest people and charge them with a, a violation of a Schedule One uh, akin to uh, trafficking in heroin. Um, uh, you know, you could you could imagine jail sentences and and, and the like. Um, that is quite scary. Now the DEA has said. Now, wait a minute, we're, 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 that's not our priority. And, and uh, you know, we're focused on fentanyl and, and, uh, and methamphetamines. But being out there is uh, causing great uh, anxiety and concern in the industry. Uh, and uh, it's something that uh, we are addressing uh, on three different levels. Uh, we're going to be filing our formal comments. We're going to be looking at legislation. And we're going to be exploring uh, the idea of litigation. You know, it cannot be overstated, as you say, that the DEA was to be formally out of the hemp business, I suppose technically on January 1, 2019, right? And uh, when, when the Farm Bill was enacted. And we know that in the Farm Bill, which of course 33 pages or so affected hemp, but the Farm Bill itself was over a thousand pages. And in those thousand pages, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration was not mentioned as single time. Yet the USDA, which has, you know, admitted, Secretary Purdue has said that the DEA uh, really came in and sort of bullied their way. That's my words, not his, but interfered and influenced those rules. Those 43 pages of USDA rules mentioned the DEA 42 times when the thousand plus page farm bill doesn't mention the DEA one time. So to say that the DEA is supposed to be out of uh, the hemp business would be an understatement. And in fact, as you well know, uh, in May of 2019, the USDA's general counsel offered up a legal opinion as to uh, the impact of the farm bill on hemp and the USDA's obligations, so on and so forth, and offered in footnotes eight and nine of this very brilliant in favor of the hemp industry and, and really showing the command of the complexities of everything involved legal opinion stated, because as we know, uh, the tetrahydrocannabinols, the definition for both marijuana and tetrahydrocannabinols were amended as, as part of the Farm Bill. And uh, the USDA general counsel says, right in his own legal opinion, um, that uh, the Controlled Substances Act certainly includes the definition of tetrahydrocannabinols, which has been amended, and notwithstanding the presence of that definition in the current regulations, he says that he is of the opinion that THC or Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, any tetrahydrocannabinol in hemp is excluded from THC as a Schedule One controlled substance under the Controlled Substances Act by virtue of the 2018 Farm Bill amendments. And the same is true 
through with hemp extract. So we know what the intent and spirit of the bill uh, is. We know how it's been interpreted by the USDA, and we certainly know how uh, the experts and the U.S. Hemp Roundtable uh, interprets those amendments. So uh, it's and it's scary to know that it isn't just uh, personal freedom being lost. It's asset forfeiture. That has always been a tremendous incentive uh, for coming against or prosecuting folks who are violating the Controlled Substances Act. So it is, of course, no guarantee or or uh, comfort to us that they say they won't be enforcing it. Would actually put folks who are in the business of handling that in process or work in process hemp material to then register as a business, you know, who is working with controlled substances. If this DEA IFR were to go through uh, as it stands, we're in a public comment period, and just so glad uh, to be and proud to be a part of the U.S. Hemp Roundtable um, as we take that on. It just would have a tremendous effect. And really, the FDA itself treats THC as a contaminant, like it would a pesticide or a heavy metal or a residual solvent. And there are ways that we deal with contaminants that are part of the in-process nature of products that are made for human consumption or animal consumption, and we can treat our excess THC in that very same way. Um, As we wrap up sort of the hemp extract piece of our interview here and move into uh, what affects really all of the hemp industry, oilseed fiber and hemp extract, and that's the USDA IFR, let's talk for a minute about California. Uh, The U.S. Hemp Roundtable uh, with a, a wonderful coalition of folks from California took, again, a leadership role working on AB 2028. We've got some issues in California. Please tell us about that and how we've ended up and what our chances are, Jonathan. Sure. So a couple of years ago, um, the hemp industry was was really alarmed when uh, the California Department of Public Health came out and, and argued that uh, it was illegal to uh, sell CBD as a dietary supplement or as a food and beverage additive. Uh, immediately or soon thereafter, legislation was introduced uh, to reverse that and to clarify that uh, uh, CBD could be sold as a dietary supplement food additive. Um, and uh, it uh, it was then known as AB 228. It was sponsored by uh, Representative uh, uh, Cecilia Aguilar Curry, uh, and it passed through the the uh, House the Assembly. Uh, three committees in the Assembly unanimously, uh, Assembly four unanimously, two committees in the Senate unanimously, and then mysteriously died in a committee in the Senate at the end of last year. So we picked it up again this year. Uh, things got really slowed down because of COVID and, and uh, uh, of, of the, the, the uh, distractions of, of forest fires and everything else going to California. Um, but uh, a few weeks ago, we were finally able to reach an agreement with the governor's office uh, that uh, wasn't perfect. Uh, we didn't get everything we wanted, but uh, fundamentally uh, would uh, uh, provide, would, would lift this uh, attack on, on hemp and CBD and, and would allow for uh, the retail sale of, of CBD with a lot of good uh, uh, regulatory protections um, uh, that uh, ensure that the products have been tested and that they're, they're safe for, for human consumption. Um, unfortunately, the compromise of the governor came so late in the process that uh, we ran out of time during the session. And uh, we were hopeful in the last few days we would be able to get it passed. It was going to be amended to AB 2028, uh, but unfortunately we ran out of time. Uh, The the good news is uh, there is a broad consensus 
in in the in the legislature, uh, and uh, that uh, if there is a special session, uh, probably not going to happen. But if there is one, uh, we hope to be part of that. But but more likely, the beginning of next year, it will be reintroduced. Um, it's been vetted, uh, and uh, again, as you mentioned, a, a broad coalition of California hemp farmers and, and industry uh, activists have uh, have are supporting it, and we've got the governor's support. We've got so much of the legislators' support. So, hopefully, we will see uh, that, and, and that uh, by the you know springtime um, of of next year, we hope to have everything resolved favorably, and and this cloud of uh, of the what the Department of Public Health uh, created would be lifted. Some seriously heroic efforts there uh, throughout that session, and particularly the last couple of weeks of the session there. Uh, again, just um, very grateful as someone who has been working towards the liberation of this plant for, for so long for the roundtables, truly uh, heroic efforts. And of course, the work of our coalition partners. Um, we certainly cannot do it alone. Now let's move on to the USDA's interim final rule which has just reopened their public comment period. Um, and just to frame this up uh, for a moment, for the listeners may may or may not realize that, of course, the 2014 Farm Bill brought forth our agricultural pilot programs. That was a defined term within the hemp amendments of the 2014 Farm Bill, and that was to uh, study the growth, cultivation, and marketing of hemp. And it's under those agricultural pilot programs that multiple states uh, began to put forth legislation authorizing their departments of ag to promulgate or create rules uh, for these ag pilot programs and farmers started to grow hemp and the crop reemerged from just a couple of thousand acres to uh, all, probably around 250,000 acres last year under those programs, which were, have less stringent rules um, in many ways and in multiple states than the rules promulgated by the USDA for the commercial crop. So the 2018 Farm Bill um, advanced the reemergence and reintroduction of the versatile, viable hemp crop from agricultural pilot programs to straight up agricultural commodity, completely removed from the Controlled Substances Act, reclaimed its place in the broad light of day with all of America's other agricultural commodities. And the USDA was then tasked with creating rules um, for this, this program and for states that want to be the primary regulatory authority to create their own rules for approval by the USDA. So we've got some issues with that interim final rule, sir. Lay it on us, if you would. Yeah, well, as, I, as we discussed earlier, when we were talking about the DEA, we, we learned a few months ago that uh, when this interim final rule, IFR, was originally uh, came out, that uh, the DEA had stuck its nose under the tent and had uh, really pressured uh, the interagency group that created this rule to um, impose a lot of restrictions on hemp farming and hemp uh, processing and hemp transportation that wound its way up into this IFR. Um, we've seen that in the form of the requirement that uh, testing only was would be able to be uh, made through DEA registered labs. Uh, and there are a limited number of those. If, if that were the case, there would be huge uh, lineups uh, and, and delays in terms of getting products tested. Um, it manifested itself in terms of uh, setting a level of negligence um, uh, at 0.5% THC. So if the farmer had a, a, a crop tested at 
0.5% THC, he, he, he could have, be criminally liable, uh, or she could be criminally liable, excuse me. Um, but uh, again, negligence is, is not an arbitrary number. And, and uh, if you're going to use any number, you should probably start at 1.0% THC where, where intoxication begins. Um, and, 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 and additionally, the, uh, the IFR said you had to destroy any, any non-compliant app. And the Farm Bill was very clear that it didn't use the word destroy, it used the word disposal. And uh, there are ways of disposing uh, in uncompliant hemp, whether it's through uh, feedstock or, or um, fuel or, or something else on the farm that, uh, again, would be uh, much greater uh, remediation for, for farmers. And so all of these different issues, um, some of them have been temporarily resolved. For example, the USDA said we were going to temporarily um, delay the uh, requirement that it has to be a DEA registered lab. Um, but now that they've reopened the comments period, it's time to ask them to make that permanent and to ask them to, to let's get the DEA out of this. Let's, let's let farmers farm. Let's not make uh, the average hemp farmer a uh, suspected criminal just by joining up as a, as a hemp farmer. Uh, and uh, let's focus on the science and, and uh, the, the technical um, ability for, for farmers to farm. And so what we've done, again, is a roundtable. If you go to hempsupporter.com, you'll be able to uh, click a few buttons and then be able to send a comment directly into uh, the, the regulations.gov portal uh, where the DEA and the USDA are reading these comments. So we encourage you uh, to come to hemptosupporter.com to make your comments. Because again, the, the roundtable has made its comments and that, that's important, um, but we want them to get thousands of comments. We want them to hear from everyone across the country that uh, the DEA has got to be out of this business and let's make this, as we go from an interim final rule to a final rule, let's use common sense, let's use science, and let's make it easier for uh, hemp farmers to farm as opposed to making it much more difficult than the original IFR uh, signified. So important. And that hempsupporter.com, what a power tool that is uh, to allow for voices to be heard and to really empower people to understand that despite all we may think, see, or feel on the news and feel about it, we live in a country where the people actually lead. And when the people lead, the leaders follow. And our system was built to engage in the process. And it's really a matter of empowering oneself with the knowledge of how to engage and then engaging and watching change be created. Uh, and so it's just, again, it's such a, a pleasure and a thrill and an honor for me um, to be able to, to serve uh, the U.S. Hemp Roundtable and, and the tremendous work that it's doing and the empowering work that it's doing for citizens, for farmers, for students, um, for everybody, of course, the stakeholders, but for every citizen who wants to engage in the process we have a platform and a way for them to do that in a way that really truly affects change. A couple other things on that USDA IFR, of course, is this idea of just testing the hemp floral material for THC as opposed to what the statutory language says, which is basically the testing, you know, this is a whole plant situation. Why would we not homogenize the plant and get an even mix here of the grain, the fiber, and the floral material as opposed to just testing? the floral material, which of course is what's mandated in the current version of the IFR. And then of course, this sample um, to harvest 15 day window is just an impossibility clearly setting um, 
farmers up for failure. And I know it is not the USDA's intent to set a farmer up for failure. They want to set farmers up for success. And so I'm really feeling uh, hopeful about this. And finally, and just taking this opportunity, as I often do to educate, uh, when we talk about, as you hit the nail on the head, that farm bill said dispose of the non-compliant hemp, not destroy it. And I just rail on this idea of pyrolysis, which the USDA has an entire portion of its website dedicated to the research that it is doing on biomass pyrolysis. Pyrolysis is a game changer. It's the heating of an organic material, such as hemp stock or hemp biomass, in the absence of oxygen. And because no oxygen is present, the material doesn't combust. But the chemical compounds, cellulose, hemicellulose, linen, sugars, that make up the material thermally decompose into combustible gases and charcoal that create 100% pure biofuel, diesel, gasoline, plastic resins, biochar, carbon block, tremendously valuable nanotubes that are otherwise created by hand um, and are cost prohibitive even for research and development. So we're taking essentially the world's most valuable cellulose and, and telling farmers that the best they can do with hemp that's above 0.3% THC, an arbitrary non-scientific number, is to essentially destroy it. Now, I appreciate that the USDA did come up with uh, some amendments and said, well, you, you can dispose of it this way. You can bury it. <laughs> you can burn it. Uh, you can compost it. Um, and, and while we so appreciate those little tiny uh, lines in the sand that have moved, we need to use it. We need to add value. We need to create the supply chain for these incredibly valuable industries and tremendously in need industries, fuel, uh, air and space, um, so on and so forth that hemp can serve and can absolutely serve with hemp that tests above 0.3% THC. And to wrap up here, time goes by so quickly. Boy, are we doing a lot of work, uh, Jonathan, under your tremendous leadership at the roundtable. I wanted to take a minute to talk about the U.S. Hemp Roundtable's Minority Empowerment Committee. I am very proud to be the vice president of our federal lobbying committee. And boy, is my heart uh, healed for the work we're doing with the Minority Empowerment Committee. Could you tell us a bit about that, Jonathan? Yeah, you know, uh, we... Uh as a hemp industry, have a, a very colored past when it comes to uh, race relations. Uh, um, the uh, hemp was a crop that was uh, farmed on the backs of, of slaves. And uh, uh, in, in some places like here in Kentucky, uh, hemp was used to justify slavery. And, uh, and, and, and now, um, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've really come up with a, a new awakening as a society in the last several months. And that I think we're all uh, in our industry struggling to figure out ways to promote equity and, and fairness and, and uh, opportunity um, for uh, people of color. Um, and, um, and so we set up a, a minority empowerment committee as a way to try to uh, um, do something uh, as an industry. Um, we have uh, set up a mission statement already and published that where we go through our, our priorities. Um, and um, we are now in the process of uh, setting up uh, stakeholder meetings with uh, uh, groups in the space to uh, help us uh, refine that mission statement into work and action. I I'm a big believer that uh, 
I get tired of organizations that, that take these opportunities to, to tweet or send out a Facebook post and say that they're supportive and then don't do anything. So we're, we're, we're doing the hard work right now to uh, uh, try to really uh, take steps to empower um, uh, farmers and, and uh, minority business people um, and to uh, and clean up our own act and to uh, ensure that uh, our, our roundtable, as well as the, our members, um, are promoting diversity and equity within their own ranks. So we're, we're at the beginning. We haven't solved anything yet, uh, but uh, we're, we're asking the right questions. And, and I hope that over the course of the next uh, uh, months and years that we'll uh, be able to be a good example for you know, the rest of, of the industry. And that's what inspires me so much is, of course, the commitment. Again, as you say, a, a tweet, a Band-Aid, a pretty sticker. No, we are committed. This is not a surface-only endeavor. We are, sleeves are rolled up. Um, it, we are so blessed to have uh, the sub-leadership and, and true leadership, I would say. It's, uh, b- the committees, of course, are always, are, are always under our main leadership, but we've got Miss Amber Littlejohn of the the Minority Cannabis Business Association, a renowned attorney, um, and of course has been a rock star in the dietary supplement world as well, and so is, is well known uh, throughout uh, the dietary supplement community. Um, but she is amazing, and we're just, I feel so blessed to have uh, her leadership within that committee as well to guide us uh, through really getting some teeth here and making meaningful change um, and doing it in a way that. Uh, can be embraced as we all evolve together to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. So uh, thank you so much, Jonathan. I know that the Minority Empowerment Committee um, was born also under your leadership. I think I was one of the first people that you contacted about birthing it into the world, and that was just a very happy day, and and it brings me a lot of joy um, and purpose to serve on that committee. Well, Jonathan, um, in closing here, is there anything that you want to make sure you say that we haven't said already besides go to hempsupporter.com? And- you know me too well. <laughs> say it, brother. That's how I, yeah. Again, if, if any of your listeners want to do something, and, and, uh, go to hempsupporter.com because we, we make it easy for you to get in touch with your Congress uh, person, uh, whether it's HR 8179, whether it's the Safe Banking Act, uh, whether it's trying to make sure our troops have access to CBD, uh, we're now making it easy for you to make comments on the interim final rules for both the DEA and the USDA. Um, but uh, if you're not on our hemp supporter list, it's free. You just give us your, your name, email, your zip code so we know who your uh, Congress per- person is and we can line you up uh, to get you active. Um, but, uh, you know, we now are involving over 50,000 people across the country. Um, I'd like to get that to you know, a couple hundred thousand because that's, uh, we've, we've already made a difference, but the more folks we have united, the, the uh, stronger our voice is going to be. So fantastic. What a thing that's been created here with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. Always wonderful to have you, Jonathan. We'll have you back on again and thank you for everything you do. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much and for everything you do. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis. 
specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.